Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack, and my co-host, Stephen Tall. Now, Stephen, you have very few notes in front of you this time. Normally, I am intimidated yeah. by the pile of preparation that you do. Well, usually I'm trying to create that effect. You know that famous photo uh, of David Davis turning <laughs> up to the first day of Brexit negotiations with the uh, uh, completely blank desk in front of him and... Barnier sat opposite him with the uh, the binders of information. So that's the intimidation effect I'm trying to go for. But today I'm afraid it... Uh, You've gone for the David Davis style. I've, I've gone more David Davis style. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not feeling this election yet enough, I don't think. So uh, perhaps perhaps we're still in the phony war stage and it'll, it'll all pick up in yeah. due course. Now, although um, I've made fun of your uh, level of detailed notes and preparation on previous occasions... I perhaps should really take a leaf out of your book because I said something really foolish that turned out to be quite spectacularly wrong. Can we clarify? I don't podcast. think I've ever, I've ever confessed to that on this podcast. It may well be true, but I'm not so, confessed to um, it. Listeners who have uh, good memories will recall that at some point in the last podcast, a voice that sounded remarkably like mine made some comment about how the Liberal Democrats had had remarkably few, maybe even no real candidate problems so far in this election. Certainly very few compared to the other parties. And that's not really how the last week has panned out. Do you want to roll, <laughs> roll out the, uh, <laughs> the um, honour band? We maybe don't need to roll out the full honour <laughs> honor band of candidate problems. But I think there is one thing that is worth picking up on this question about where the Liberal Democrats are standing candidates. And in particular, controversy we had about whether um, Lib Dem candidates should stand down in Canterbury and then another Lib Dem candidate elsewhere, sort of saying uh, they were going to quit because they thought we, should, we, sh- we shouldn't stand in Canterbury and so on. And, and partly because it's a point that actually the Not Enough Champagne podcast has made very well this week. Hello, Corey. Hello, Steve. Which is that the decision about whether or not to do a deal or indeed whether to unilaterally stand down in a particular constituency isn't just about that constituency but it's also about the broader message you send as a party mm-hmm. and it's a, something we've touched on before with the unite to remain agreements that that broader messaging is actually quite important for the liberal democrats um in terms of focusing trying to focus the election more on brexit and also being associated with the greens and plaid there's obviously some controversy about the association with plaid but there's a, a point there about saying well look we're we're not a political pariah However, unilaterally standing down from Labour would bring a whole load of very different messaging in the seats other than the ones where those individual candidates were making their own decisions. And that's why the reaction of the party overall has been to say, whoa, hang on a minute, you can't unilaterally decide to pull out. This is a decision the party collectively has to make. Yeah. And I mean, for all the, uh, I mean, I guess the Canterbury constituency is a, um, it's quite a particular case because of uh, Rosie Duffield, the Labour candidate, uh, an incumbent MP being uh, viewed quite positively overall as, a, as, a, as an individual throws up a whole load of issues. Um, so you can understand, mm. you could understand if there are Lib Dem um, voters, uh, normally Lib Dem voters in Canterbury, reflecting hard on how they would vote there. But I think you're right, I'm the bigger issue, and I guess the... My Just a question though, and Rosie Duffield, I mean, and the speech that she gave in the Commons about um, domestic violence, yeah, and her experience really moving, yeah. really moving speech. And, you know, if you were to put together a compilation of the, the best, and also maybe in some ways the most important speeches in this Parliament, you know, if you had a top ten list, I think you know, that speech of hers would have a very, very strong case for being in that list. I'm not, though, aware of her being particularly rebellious, and I think there is a difference that 
maybe the debate would have played out differently in the Lib Dems and more, more generally if it had been a candidate who, let's say, had rebelled uh, against the Jeremy Corbyn, will we still want to go ahead and negotiate a Brexit deal several times in Parliament? I, 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 I don't think that Rosie Duffield really has a parliamentary record of being a rebel when yeah. push comes to shove, which also makes, in a way, a slightly odd, almost totemic case. You know, if, if we're talking about a Labour MP who regularly rebelled, then you could see the, the arguments about, well, surely the Lib Dems you know, should be thinking it's about them and not about Corbyn. But, but I don't think that argument really applies to Yeah, her. no, I, I don't dispute that, but obviously there are special circumstances uh, in Canterbury, it being one of the narrowest uh, Labour majorities. And so, inevitably, under first-past-the-post, voters are often left with a poor choice of thinking, OK, if I really don't want, in this case, the Conservative Party, say, to get in, who am I best placed voting for? And it's, of course, something that we've touched on previously about the Lib Dems having to play that system, and that's the importance of bar charts with it. And we can't... But by using bar charts, we are implicitly conceding the fact that, um, you know, candidate party Y can't win here is actually quite an effective and sometimes rational way of approaching an election. Oh, absolutely. I, I think part of the Lib Dem reaction, though, has been driven by, let's say, the contrast with Richmond Park, yeah, yeah. where the Labour Party is standing exactly, a candidate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think on balance, Labour Party standing a candidate is probably not yeah. that damaging to the Lib Dems, uh, because if Labour wasn't standing candidate, we would most likely pick up most of their votes. On the other hand, the Tories yeah. in that seat would have a real go at the Lib Dems over that. Um, so, and that was so, my, my, that was my so, overriding sense of the... Um, of the debate last week was that it was uh, just this sense of entitlement you often get from exactly, the Labour yeah. Party that, yes, of course the Liberal Democrats should stand down where Labour candidates face tough battles and where it's a tight Conservative Labour fight by the looks of it, uh, but um, does that necessarily get reciprocated in places mm. like Richmond Park or any of the other uh, tight Lib Dem majority uh, areas or the ones where the Lib Dems are going for um, a win this time? No, of course not. Yeah. And and weirdly, if if you could were to take a slightly sort of more dispassionate view, you'd say actually it should really be the other way around. Because if Labour doesn't stand, and particularly if the Greens don't stand as well in a seat, most of those votes, the overwhelming majority of the votes, the votes are going to go to the Lib Dems. And you see that both uh, in, in things like polling research and so on, and you can, you can also see the inherent logic in a way in that. But if the Lib Dems don't stand, it's a much more dicey question about whether the net benefit is the Tories or Labour. Because yeah. actually one of the things the Lib Dems have been trying to do somewhat radically differently for an opposition party in this parliament, is actually win votes from the party in power. <laughs> and Labour has very much set out its stall as not being that desperately pitching for votes from the Tories. And again, if you look at when there's things like opinion polls and so on, who are the second preferences of Labour Party supporters, who are the second preferences of Lib Dem supporters, it's not at all clear that, for example, a Lib Dem standing down in somewhere like Canterbury would actually net benefit Labour. So if there were to be one party that was much keener on standing mm -hmm. down, in a way it should be Labour rather than the Lib Dems, but of course it's, it's the other way around. Yeah, that, that argument hasn't quite played out yet, has it? And, what's, and we're talking about this issue, and it's, I guess, one of the few issues um, where the Lib Dems have actually been in the media quite a bit mm. is around the, um, uh, the controversies, shall we call it, about... Uh, whether Lib Dem candidates should stand at all in a couple of these seats and where Lib Dem candidates have stood down making that decision for the party or yeah. trying to make, force the party into that decision by doing it at the last minute before nominations close. Does that point to a wider worry for the party, I guess, that in the opening stages, and we're now two weeks into an election campaign, yes, with another um, almost a month to go, but still, uh, that the party's yet really managed to 
uh, land its message? Do you feel that? Yeah, I think the. Um, are we getting squeezed out of uh, of the debate? We've seen Lib Dem poll ratings edge down. I mean, you know, nothing catastrophic compared to what the party's got used to over the mm. um, before March this year. Uh, pretty good, you know, fifteen percent or so. But that's down from the twenty percent mm. that the party was at over the summer, etc. So, does this point to a, a squeeze and the two party hegemony reasserting itself? Um, I think. There's a couple of elements to that. One is just to sort of segue from the candidate point is the decision those two candidates made to sort of stand down and make a national media story out of it, etc. In a way, made that the Lib Dem coverage for a good few days was predominantly around candidates, etc. But also it was predominantly about coverage which implicitly framed the Liberal Democrats as being a smaller party and not in the main game. Because it yeah. was all of that. Well, surely the Lib Dems should stand aside for this other, bigger, more, you know, larger party. Um, and I suspect the people who made those decisions maybe didn't fully think through what they were doing to the National Party in making mm. those decisions. I have to say, in one case as well, you know, if you read the statement they issued at the end of it, they have a go at politicians in general and about how they think politics should all be about experts and not about party politics. And there is a respectable view it would be one I would disagree with about that because I think there are choices and value judgments that need mm -hmm. making which is why it's not all about experts and although experts are obviously important however uh, fundamentally you do have to say if your view is that party politics is wrong I'm not sure you should be yeah. a candidate for a party in a political election anyway yeah. the other element though is I think how all the various policy announcements have panned out mm -hmm. and I think there's been a interesting contrast between the Liberal Democrat and the Labour approach in this in that with the Lib Dems, we've had a whole series of very carefully costed individual policies, um, but they've been presented essentially as a series of individual goodies. There is a slight overarching theme about, well, look, if we can just stop Brexit, we can get on with doing all of this other stuff. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, there isn't that clear a theme that brings together the plan to plant millions more trees and the plan to treat, say, mental health provision on a par with physical health provision yeah yeah labor i think by contrast have made much more of a coherent story running through their different policy announcements and in part because they're willing have been much keener at least to make a virtue of the costs of the policies mm -hmm. so talking about well we're doing this to reduce inequality and we're going to pay for it by taxing the richest people even more yeah. which it reinforces the point about this is overall what we're trying to achieve Lib Dems by comparison you know we have some policies in there that will make uh, the tax system fairer uh, but things like the desire to increase the level of capital gains tax to bring more into line with income tax as a way of helping fund some of the things we want to do that is almost like that's the cost that we'd rather not talk about but the details there if you're asked rather than actually no that is part of making a fairer society that it's something that we want to really center on yeah so i mean it's interesting that i was having a quick comparison of the 2017 uh pledges key pledges that the Lib dems made in that election with uh with this time, and as I guess you'd expect, there's quite a lot of overlap uh, between them, certainly in terms of the core issues such as uh, health spending and schools and uh, environment uh, and the uh, parity of mental and physical health care services, etc. So kind of all uh, pretty much fundamental Lib Dem issues. Uh, where there's a big difference this time, of course, is on the flagship um, Brexit policy, mm. having shifted from urging a people's vote slash second referendum in 2017 through to uh, going for the clear cut revoke mm. uh, article 50 policy this time but then 
trying to link that very clearly through to the um, the fifty billion pound Brexit bonus, which uh, remain um, bonus, not Brexit bonus. Sorry, anti Brexit bonus. bonus. <laughs> you see how effective uh, the messaging can be sometimes. Even I can slip into Brexit bonuses. But you're quite right. Remain bonus that would come from staying within the European Union. Uh, whereas, of course, in 2017, the party was actually advocating a one penny in the pound income tax rise. Uh, in order to fund health services. I don't know whether that policy we are will survive. We are again. Okay. But I guess that illustrates my point that even for someone like yourself, yep. who is um, the variable loyalty Liberal Democrat <laughs> member of the podcast, but obviously pays a lot more attention to politics than the average voter, that that bit hadn't cut through, yeah. that we're not making the costs of the policies into a virtue in terms of helping paint a picture of the sort of society we will want and therefore what our values are. And there was um, one of the big criticisms <clears throat> that was made in the 2005 general election, which was, uh, though it was a relative success uh, for the party and uh, you know, a number of MPs and votes both up, it was viewed at the time as a bit of a missed opportunity mm. uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Iraq war and the Lib Dems mm. having taken the right stance at the right time not necessarily yielding the electoral benefit from that. But one of the criticisms that was made of the campaign was that it was just a shopping list of those all sound like good things. Now, I think there were most of the Lib Dem campaign posters were the kind of five or ten um, kind of big spending commitments and uh, just, you know, vote Lib Dem. And it was and felt that didn't yeah. add up to in, enough of a coherent message about why people should... Uh, should identify with the Liberal Democrats as opposed to just going, yeah, those all sound yeah. a bit good. And it was, yeah, there were lots of culinary metaphors in the post-election debriefs and debates about how we had listed all of the ingredients but not put together a recipe mm -hmm. yeah. and the like. And yet there was, there was a series of 10, if I remember rightly, statements which were we oppose X and we propose That's Y. Right, yeah. So there was a little bit within each of them of pairing what we're against with what we would do positively instead but collectively, overall, yeah. they they added up to ten things good for targeting particular voters in yeah. the party's target seats, rather than particularly a clear overall. So, do you pitch. think there's a danger that that's happening? I mean, even though the party has kind of pared it down and, in a sense, has one overarching message this time of stop Brexit, do you think that's still an issue that uh, there isn't that sense of what the um, what is our slogan? Brighter fu liberal future. Um, uh, stop Brexit for a brighter future. Stop You're just trolling me for... and our listeners here, Stephen. Uh, yeah. Um, so, on a serious point we... about that, um, after after that podcast where I um, expressed um, my slight disdain for uh, what I think is quite a um, an airy fairy kind of um, slogan, I did try and come up with a slightly crunchier one, um, which I put out on Twitter, and which uh, some people liked, some people didn't. But I want to test out here, which was uh, stop Brexit, stop Corbyn. Uh, start afresh and the reason I'm mentioning that here is because I think it does point to one of the issues that the party does have which is getting squeezed out mm. and the worry that I suspect lots of conservative well not that there are many conservative remainers left but lots of the conservative inclined voters who would be prepared to vote Lib Dem are going to have a worry about and which the conservatives are going to unremittingly exploit in the coming weeks is the fear that the Lib Dems will just let Jeremy Corbyn into power now, I mean, Jo Swinton's been categorical about this, mm. that uh, she will not vote for Jeremy Corbyn to become Prime Minister, but still that fear, I think, is, is out there, uh, and uh, amongst Conservative-inclined voters, I should stress. And does is, is the party's messaging struggling slightly to come up against the fact that uh, ultimately voters are going to be faced with these very blunt choices mm. when it comes to the ballot box as to who they want to stop and who they want to let in? 
and that the Conservative messaging of fear of Corbyn might be more effective than our message of fear of Brexit. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the parallel with 2005 may well be one that gets explored a lot more once we see the election results. Yeah. Obviously, that will massively frame how people see the campaign. Um, I think, though, the risk with your example slogan um, is that sort of essentially it's a we're not late we're not the Tories we're not Labour let's do something different mm-hmm. which for example was what our 2015 slogan was yeah look like look left look right then cross and that messaging went down massively badly yeah uh, so I, I don't think I think they are different by the way but yes okay I take the point. I, I don't think there is a a sort of a magic all-conquering slogan just waiting for us over the hill um, and partly that's because the most successful slogans are successful because they're capturing a wider message yeah. and a wider political position and opportunity. Wider... And, I, and I think fundamentally that we're not Labour, we're not Tories, we're someone nice in the middle is a very problematic positioning. Cause it's I, been agree quite... I agree with that. The whole kind of, you know, you just get run over in the middle. Mm, exactly. Uh, I get that. I, mean, I guess what I was going for more with, and you know, clearly... The fact I'm having to explain it perhaps means it's not an effective message. But the point I'm trying to make mm. with it is that um, I think there is an overarching message coming through so far. And as you mm. say, it's you know weeks ahead until polling day, so it's too early to have a pre-mortem. Mm. But um, of dissatisfaction among the public with any of the choices that they have mm. facing them. And yes, that, that probably gets caricatured and messaged out at every single election that people are mm. a bit unhappy at this stage with their choices. And then eventually they firm up and reluctantly yep. come to to it and then stick by it at least for a bit but um, that sense of I don't like Boris Johnson and I don't like Jeremy Corbyn feels more prevalent than I can remember in general election during my lifetime of you know dislike mm. of the two main candidates to be Prime Minister at, uh, at this election and, and that sense of uh, lots of voters feeling like they don't have much choice and so I, I think that does make it different in terms of the Lib Dems being actively able to say look there is another mm. alternative, and you can stop both of those things happening. Not as with the look left, mm. look right, where it's kind of, well, I'll wait, you know, they're pretty much um, even Stevens. I'm not sure which way I go. Mm. Oh, I'll tell you what, I'll go Lib Dem instead. I don't think it's that sense of uh, uh, just trying to split the difference. It's much more of a sense of, look, these are two competing threats to our country, and there is a party that can actually stop mm. them from uh, exerting that threat. That's that's the sense of the message. Yeah, right? I, I, I guess the thing that makes that message a lot harder to successfully convey this time is the party has started from a much weaker position. Sure. Uh, and I mean, I, thinking back, I guess maybe to the nineteen eighty three election. You know, then you could say, look at what how the Liberal parties did in seventy nine. They did even worse in that sense than the Lib mm-hmm. Dems did in twenty seventeen. But the creation of the alliance in the interim meant that going into the eighty three election as well then as subsequent elections where that sort of message has been played out, the Lib Dems or the Alliance previously were starting in a much stronger position and therefore that message had a greater degree of credibility and cut through. And I think one of the things we're seeing in how this election is playing out is that, for example, the Tories are getting very, very little flack over the fact that they're saying there's this amazing deal that we've negotiated for mm-hmm. Northern Ireland that's absolutely brilliant, but by the way, there's no way we're going to let Scotland, Wales and England have the same deal. Yeah. There is real material to get stuck into there. I don't think the Tories are paying any political cost for that at the moment. And why are they not paying that cost? Because Corbyn is massively unpopular and the Liberal Democrats are small. Yeah. And that's... In a way that actually, I think, were there a similar weakness in, say, the Tory case 
maybe let's say 1997 with a really popular opposition leader and a third party that at that stage was you know, more successful, um, then you, know, you could see that debate playing out very, very differently. And in fact, I remember one of my striking memories of the 97 election was how the number of things that I thought were really good reasons not to vote Tory in the 92 election, but hadn't really got much traction, became issues that really mattered in 97. Mm. And it wasn't so much because the debate had been won or the argument had moved on, it was because the, you know, the case was being put by a much more popular main opposition party. Yeah. So do you think there's an issue with... Uh, <clears throat> I mean, one of Jo Swinson's main pitches that um, she's repeated a lot is, I am standing here as a candidate mm. to be your prime minister. Mm. Now, but implicit within your uh, answer just then is that, you know, they're starting a long way back, which is just uh, you know, an unavoidable mm. fact of uh, a political reality but does that mean that that message which was uh, seen quite effective in the summer mm. just after the Lib Dems had come second in the European elections and Conservatives had trailed behind in fifth and the Brexit party was still riding high none of that is now the case and does it therefore look a little bit odd and a little bit divorced from reality to have Joe Swinson and of course I understand mm. why she's saying it is that it's the whole trying to get past the Lib Dems are a wasted vote mm. argument that the party every election yep. has to try and get beyond and hence the bar charts and all the rest of it but does that start to look a little bit kind of um, go back to your constituencies and prepare for government kind of territory of just looking a little bit false well the other reason for it is also to avoid the follow-up question of, so, OK, who are you really going to support as Prime Minister? But that follow-up question comes anyway, doesn't it? <laughs> but, but I think the is, you know, there is a much better response of, no, I'm, you know, I'm going to be Prime Minister. That, that is a more front foot, more forceful, yeah. more this is why I'm here, this is my message uh, answer. So I think the, you know, it's one of those questions that, I mean, in a way it slightly annoys me that journalists waste their time asking yeah, because I you think... You. You know that if the politician gives you an honest answer, you will write up a story about it's a massive gaffe. And then when the politician th therefore doesn't give you a straight answer, you're absolutely outraged. So I think any question around how well do you think you're going to do at the election is basically a waste of time. Yeah. Because pretty much every politician always has to give a really positive answer to that. And also because and until the election results come in, you don't quite know what counts as good. It um, so, uh, you know, going up in the polls and going up in numbers of seats could look good or not look good, depending on whether it makes you uh, have a pivotal position mm. in the hung parliament or just be a small party as part of, you know, a, a conservative majority mm. of 60 or 70 where it becomes less relevant. Mm. And uh, those numbers really do matter before you can actually write the story. Um, looking at the last week's mm. coverage, uh, and of course we moved to a slightly more frequent um, turnaround in our podcasting, haven't we, to reflect the election campaign. So it's it feels like less time since we last met, but the, the because it is because it is. Uh, but the, the dominant issues over the last week, you've got the flooding, obviously, mm. uh, in, uh, in, oh, in Boris Paris. Johnson and the mop. Boris Johnson and the but, mop. Yeah. But again, I think that actually goes back to my earlier point, which is his inability to use a mop and what that says about him. Yeah, would be massively more damaging if he was up against a popular opposition leader. Yeah, or indeed if... if a if, popular leader of the opposition, as in Labour leader, that is. Yeah. If there was a media that was uh, more equal, uh, or even-handed in terms of its uh, its criticism. So you've got, um, got Boris Johnson and the mop, uh, and, the, uh, and the more serious issue about the flooding uh, in various parts mm. of the country. Uh, you've got the Brexit party 
uh, deciding to stand down in uh, half the seats or thereabouts in England, wherever there is a an incumbent Conservative majority. And then you've got uh, Labour's broadband uh, proposals. Uh, and those have been the three. And then, of course, we've had the over the weekend, mm. it's just been wall-to-wall Prince Andrew. But those have been the three big kind of political um, stories of the week. What can the Lib Dems do, if anything, over the next week to try and break, to disrupt that um, pattern of uh, either uh, its events, dear boy events, or it's uh, Labour Conservatives just dominating the airwaves uh, aided and abetted by their friends in, in the right-wing newspapers? I'm about to utter some words I thought I would never utter, which is I think the Liberal Democrats can learn from Prince Andrew. Um, his interview was... You're going to have to defend that statement. ...disastrous in all sorts of ways. So I hasten to add that this is Liberal Democrats can learn from Prince Andrew's mistakes. Uh, but one of the things that I think was... I mean, not just a mistake, but really almost offensive in about Prince, Prince Andrew's answers in those interview in that interview was the lack of any real sense of contrition or sympathy or emotional engagement with the victims in the mm-hmm. overall story. Even at the end, where I thought this was a really good example of good interviewing, where he was given that very soft would you like to add anything else type question, which I thought was really smart because that gave him the opportunity to say how sorry he is or how much sympathy he had or whatever, and he failed to take it. And he looked, as a result, in a way far worse than if it had been a really aggressive line of questioning, a really good example of how sometimes the deceptively soft question is, is... But going back to the more substantive point, just that lack of any real emotional engagement. And I think this goes back to this point about how the Lib Dems need to paint a clear and emotionally compelling story about the sort of society that we want. And planting more trees is part of that. Stopping Brexit is part of that. Reforms to the welfare system are part of that. But they need to add up to an emotional case not simply be a bullet point mm-hmm. list of policies with numbers and decimal points in them. Yeah. What would what would your answer to your own question be? I, I don't know. I'm not, it's, uh, I don't have a good answer to it. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I got out of the politics game, I guess. Uh, so it just strikes me that we, over the... So I've talked about the past week and the stories that have been the main stories, at least that uh, I've noticed, uh, and none of them particularly involved the Liberal Democrats. And then, of course, this week you've got the first of the um, broadcasters' two-party stitch-up debates um, with um, ITV putting uh, Jeremy Corbyn up against Boris Johnson and excluding Joe Swinson, Nicola Sturgeon or any of the other uh, party leaders. Uh, And so there's the prospect of the next week as well uh, and the coverage there being skewed. Uh, And, of course, that pattern starts to repeat itself. Sky News has offered to host a three-way contest. We don't know yet whether... Conservatives will actually uh, accede to that or not. But you've got this risk that um, a bit has happened in 2017 that you have this perpetual um, uh, it's Labour and the Conservatives, and then there's this host of other, other mm. parties that are standing. And how is it that Liberal Democrats um, can actually um, break through that? And I, I, don't have a, I don't have a good and clear answer. Obviously, things like the manifesto mm. launch will hopefully get some publicity. Um, but it's it's one of those strangleholds that's really hard to break, isn't it? It's not just the electoral system that stifles the party, but also the way in which that then plays out in the media as well. 
because uh, realistically there are two people who are going to be Prime Minister. Now we have a parliamentary system so I don't think that should matter. But to the broadcasters, as long as they can say we've given Joe Swinson some air coverage at other times, etc., it doesn't matter. Yeah, except that, I mean, you say there are two people, but that's not really true. Now, I say that not only because, of course, Joe Swinson is going to be Prime Minister, <laughs> but also if you look at a, the most plausible scenario by which the next Prime Minister is not Boris Johnson, mm-hmm. it involves a hung parliament. Yep. And in a hung parliament, the Liberal Democrats are very clear that we wouldn't vote for Jeremy Corbyn. So if you are going to go down the road of saying, well, look, we really think the next Prime Minister is going to be Conservative or Labour, then it seems to me perfectly reasonable to say, well, look, follow the next step in your logic. And at least some of your media coverage should be about, well, if it's not Jeremy Corbyn, who might it be from Labour? And I think think in that sense, that's why I find a lot of the media decisions about focusing just on Johnson and Corbyn quite their self-justifications quite unconvincing because even if you take as given and obviously you know I would dispute and maybe a little bit more than you would dispute the logic of well actually no it's really only Corbyn or you know really only Labour or the Tories that doesn't mean it's therefore really only Johnson or Corbyn Um, and also I think it's just sensible for the media to learn you know the mistakes of their media coverage of the European elections you know let's not forget yeah, opening opening scene of the BBC election night coverage, panel of people to talk about, and they had nobody on sure. from yeah. the parties who finished first and second. I mean, just think about that. It, it'd be like you start your coverage of the FA, FA Cup final with nobody from either the two teams in the final. You know, you've just got somebody, somebody from one of the teams that got knocked out in the semi-final. Yeah, just really, a really, what should be a really shocking blunder, but I think... Uh, certainly the response from one of the BBC uh, backroom staff on that programme who responded to me on Twitter suggests that they, they don't really see that that was a problem. Yeah. Um, so, so there is the chance that uh, the ITV debate this week uh, is uh, on at 8 o'clock uh, and then Joe Swinson and Nicola Sturgeon's song get a uh, chance at 10 o'clock. Um, now, in between that is I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. So it's possible that the lead-in from that will mean there are bigger ratings for, uh, <laughs> for the Joe Swinson think, interview than there would be for... I think uh, you're, you're, you're being even more optimistic than I usually am <laughs> on, on, on these things. I think the, the, the other thing, though, about that 10 o'clock slot, which we, it makes it very touch-and-go about the new, new, hitting newspaper coverage for the next day, mm. and, of course, one of the things that broadcasters still massively sort of tug their forelock to the newspapers over is how much broadcast coverage is set by that morning's yeah. newspaper. So I think that 10 o'clock slot is much less generous yeah. than it I'm might initially look. And actually a better move would have been to shift everything forward so that both sets are before I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Yeah. I'm That's, assuming that obviously from ITV's perspective, I'm a celebrity is untouchable. I, I think so, yeah. More so than a general election. I, mean, I can understand ITV deciding to go for the gladiatorial Mm. Uh, two-way mm. battle. Uh, it's a commercial mm. broadcaster and it, it's motivated primarily by its uh, its bottom line and I guess it, it feels rightly or wrongly that uh, Johnson versus Corbyn is bigger box office. So I can I can get that. What I'm uh, what I feel more uncomfortable about, not least because I'm not by any means a, a BBC basher, is that the public service broadcaster has also taken the decision um, to uh, stage a debate and it in particular that it's doing so in the week before uh, polling day, so at a time when it could make a, a big difference. Although um, after a lot of people will after vote a, it, because after, after a, a whole lot of people vote it, yep, it's, it's, it's a bizarre decision. It is, or but nonetheless. A questionable decision on Most on people will still fronts. vote on uh, the 12th of December, 
and it will certainly kind of set a tone for the final week of the campaign, uh, or could plausibly set a tone for the final week of the campaign if, if uh, one of the uh, two people being featured uh, lands a blow on the other. Uh, and I just failed to see the kind of public service remit within that. And uh, so whilst I can understand ITV, and I could have understood Sky, though they seem to be going for a three-way debate, but I could have understood Sky doing it because they are commercial broadcasters and they don't have a remit beyond making a profit for their shareholders. Um, I don't quite understand why the BBC is also playing into that as well, and it does speak to me anyway to a, a kind of uh, a more worrying um, seepage of uh, the BBC's understanding of what public service means in terms of its news output. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that puzzles me about this all is why the broadcasters don't just get together to say we're going to set up an independent commission mm, yeah. that will come up with recommendations. Which is what they do in America. Isn't and it? and the key element though is the broadcasters will then need to say we will follow that. We will issue the invites. If anyone, if yeah, the invites are to a leader and the leader declines it, we will empty chair them. That is the thing all of the broadcasters are going to sign up clearly in advance yeah. to do. Um, it's a weird mix. And then, and, then, and then let, you know, let a political party, if they wish to then try to go to court to say an independent process has said this is who it's going to be, we're refusing to take part and therefore we want to try and stop everything. You know, that, that seems to me... Just the such an obvious thing to do, and whenever I've mm. you know, and I've sometimes read at some length the different comments from different people in the media about what they're doing and why they're trying to organise it, and I just don't understand why they don't go down that road. Mm. Other than in the end, it's just um, there's too much uh, petty competition, yeah, as it were, I between them. And, and, and I paused a little bit over the word petty, but I think in this case it's justifiable to use because you say you know all of them are presenting it as somehow they are bequeathing this wonderful democratic gift to the nation by putting on this show or shows in which case we'll just do it properly yeah it's a weird example of um uh, the brits allowing market uh, forces to determine the outcome whereas in america it's quite heavily regulated. yeah exactly well it, american football is always the lovely example of that amazingly socialist one even might say communist in its rules <laughs> to deliberately hobble the most successful um, but before we diverge too much <laughs> into becoming a sporting podcast, that'd be great fun, actually, wouldn't it? Each of us trying to attempt to talk about sports for the full uh, yeah. length of a podcast. Before we get into such weird territory, a quick wrap-up item about the Liberal Democrat internal elections. They have all been concluded. Uh, the counts for the various party committees for things like the Federal Board, the Conference Committee, the Policy Committee, and, and, and other important bodies like the International Relations Committee has all been conducted and done Congratulations to committee members who have been elected. Commiserations to those who didn't make it this time. Um, the party president election has also the voting stopped. The count, however, will not be done until after the general election. So we will have to return to this topic. Have you done an exit poll, again? Mark? Have you once done an exit again? poll? No, sadly. Ah. Sadly, I've not done an exit poll this time. So mystery <laughs> surrounds the result. We shall wait with bated breath. <laughs> 